um, the writings of John Paul II have been gladly, I should say, the philosophical writings, because you know he's done a lot of uh, theological writings, um, and I, I'm concentrating on the philosophical writings since you know that's my training. So, the philosophical writings of John Paul II have been gladly received by some. Okay. So, the philosophical writings of John Paul II have been gladly received by some and regarded with caution by others. On the side of caution have been those who view his connection to phenomenology with its emphasis on experience and the subjective side of the human being as a source of confusion. Michael uh, Waldstein describes this kind of position in his introduction to the theology of the body. So, you know, as you know, philosophy is the handmaid of theology, so you need to rely on a good philosophy to do your theology. Many theologians in modernity have given prominent place to experience in their theology, often combined with an exaltation of feeling and a polemical edge against the objective content of the faith. So people who emphasize the subjective are regarded with caution. History shows, however, and has shown, uh, that the mere fact of controversy need not be a source of consternation or even surprise, but often should be an occasion to look twice. St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, was not only ridiculed by his fellow students as the dumb ox, but it was also condemned by the Bishop Tempier of Paris, where Thomas taught, as a radical Aristotelian. Only 40 years after his death did he begin to gain the recognition he deserves as the thinker who has synthesized St. Augustine and Aristotle, the best faith and reason had to offer. Uh, I just want to check, am I going too slow or too fast? Let me know. Good, okay. Now, as Plato and Aristotle have lucidly shown, looking twice means going beyond opinions and first impressions to causes and first principles in order to make sense of what at first glance seems confusing or even contradictory. The aim of this paper is therefore to look at the writings of John Paul II in light of his philosophical principles. The thesis of the paper is that his concept of the person is the first principle in his anthropology and ethics. Moreover, he develops his understanding of the person by means of the realist metaphysical and epistemological principle actio sequitur esse, or action follows or proceeds from being, and conversely, being can be known from and through action or activity. The paper hopes to show that a correct understanding of these two principles in the writings of John Paul II not only explains his own positions, but also his stance towards modern philosophy and phenomenology in particular. Conversely, a misunderstanding of these principles can shed some light on the mixed reactions his works have received. Now, so the thesis should be clear by now. The method I use um, in this paper aims at overcoming an initial obstacle to interpreting uh, John Paul II's philosophical thought. He wrote several major works before his election to the papacy. The theological works, such as the theology of the body, are more widely known. The problem is that the reader looks in vain for an in-depth discussion of philosophical principles there, since they are merely assumed and applied at that point. 
Uh, Michael Waldstein disca discusses his uh, philosophical principles in the introduction to the theology of the body. But there, uh, Michael comes from his own take of uh, the modern background of John Paul II's thought and doesn't go into John Paul II's own wrestling with these issues, which he does in his <coughs> Lublin lectures. So um, I'm going to then um, take as a basis of interpretation the Lublin lectures, a set of philosophical essays in which Karol Wojtyla, before he was pope, um, refines his, refined his philosophical principles in dialogue with the classical, medieval, and modern traditions. And it's an utterly fascinating, amazing book, which I highly recommend. The following picture emerges from these essays. So uh, on the one hand, so this, the title of this section is called Person Versus Consciousness. In keeping with the tradition originating in Boethius, John Paul II defines person as rationalis nature individualis substantia, an individual substance of a rational nature. Noting that Thomas Aquinas uses this notion of the person by way of analogy in his Trinitarian and Christological theology, John Paul II adds that the definition as such is philosophical. I quote, the basis on which it is constructed as a fundamental understanding of the human being. John Paul II thus can and does take the notion of the person out of a theological context and uses it in philosophy. In connection with this notion of the person, he builds on the Aristotelian and Thomistic hylomorphic understanding of the human being. Hylomorphic meaning what you study in, in the De Anima, meaning the composition, well, and, and the physics, the composition of matter and form, and in, in specifically with reference to the soul and the body with the soul as the form of the body. I will say more about this later. Um, John Paul II develops his understanding uh, of the person on the foundation of the traditional understanding sketched above in explicit opposition to the Cartesi Cartesian school of thought, noting that it has a distorted that it has distorted the relation of the objective element, being, to the subjective element, thought, by hypostasizing consciousness. Hypostasizing means treating as a being in its own right, something that's only a part of a being, okay? Um, or here, hypostasis is just a being in its own right. And if you make a part of a being conscious, if you hypostasize it, you just make it into a being of its, in its own right. In other words, while John Paul II holds that the person has consciousness, Descartes maintains that the human being is consciousness. And the junior, if you're juniors or seniors, you've seen that the body is sort of an extension um, tacked onto a human being who, who is consciousness, basically. I think therefore I am. Um, I quote, in modern post-Cartesian philosophy, the person is primarily, if not exclusively, consciousness. A consciousness that is in some way subsistent, i.e. exists as a thing in its own right, existing against the backdrop of the organism, which Descartes regarded as a special kind of mechanism. This view lacks a sufficient basis for including the body, the organism, within the structural whole of the person's life and activity. It lacks the notion of the spiritual soul as the substantial form of the body, 
and as the principle of the whole life and activity of the human being. So what you've done is, if you, if you make consciousness into a being of its own right, then the soul now is not the principle of the life of the body anymore. The soul doesn't <coughs> suffuse the body anymore, um, okay. which is its part of its job. Mm. The basis for um, John Paul II's radical departure from Descartes is argumentation from simply experience. This is just where he comes, comes in and just say, experience is my solution. So um, I quote, the basis for understanding the human being must be sought in experience, an experience that is complete and comprehensive and free from all systemic a prioris. Experience automatically frees us from the pure consciousness as subject, conceived a priori, and leads us to the full concrete existence of the human being, to the reality of the conscious subject. Okay, so moving then from Descartes to a further development of Cartesian thought in Kant, uh, John Paul II's reaction to the Kantian notion of pure reason is exactly along the same lines and is also rejected on the grounds of experience. I quote, pure reason seems to be an artificial construct specifically designed for philosophical analysis. From the standpoint of experience as the first and fundamental source of our knowledge, we have to say that we know reason only as a property or power of the human being as a distinct part of that being. Now, the position that the person has consciousness, as opposed to the view that the human being is consciousness, has two key ramifications. First, by opposing the Cartesian view, John Paul II also departs from philosophical positions he sees as essentially connected to it, uh, including Husserl's understanding of the human being. I single him out as the most prominent phenomenologist who had everybody and their brother as uh, his student. So Edith Snein, um, Heidegger, um, Scheele are only a few. I did, you, you can, practically everybody who's famous in, in modern thought at some point studied with um, Husserl. So I quote, um, consciousness is not an independent subject, although by means of a certain abstraction or rather exclusion, which in Husserlian terminology is called epoche, consciousness could be treated as though it were a subject. This way of treating consciousness forms the basis of all transcendental philosophy, which investigates acts of cognition as intentional acts of consciousness, that is, as acts directed towards extra-subjective, objective con contents, phenomena, things which you experience. As long as this type of analysis of consciousness retains the character of a cognitive method, it can and does bear excellent fruit. And yet, because this method is based on the exclusion, epoche, of consciousness from reality, from really existing being, it cannot be regarded as a philosophy of that reality, and it certainly, and it certainly cannot be regarded as a philosophy of the human being, the human person. This quote shows that John Paul II departs from Husserl because of the essential connection between the Cartesian and Husserlian view of the person caused by the divorce of consciousness from the really existing being. Second, while John Paul II substitutes the human being understood as person for the human being understood as consciousness, he does maintain that the person has consciousness. If this is so, as the quote above Husserl indicated, the work modern philosophy and phenomenology in particular has done in exploring consciousness 
on the subjective side of the person need not be dismissed, but can be integrated into an understanding of the person. This is why, on the one hand, John Paul II rejects what he calls phenomenalism, namely the philosophy, which is defined as the philosophy of consciousness, and on the other hand, accepts and uses what he calls phenomenology or the phenomenological method. I quote, Phenomen phenomenalism assumes that the essence of a thing is unknowable. In other words, we, we cannot go beyond our own consciousness of the thing. Essence in the sense, everybody says that we really don't know essences, but what it means is that we can't really approach things in and of themselves. It's all just in our consciousness. Phenomenology, on the other hand, accepts the essence as it appears in immediate experience. Phenomenology is therefore into it, in it Intuitionistic. So he accepts, um, again, based on his first principle um, of accepting experience and all of experience, he connects phenomenology with that and says, um, as long as we uh, operate from a basis of experience, um, uh, we are true to reality. John Paul II's notion of phenomenology as method is in keeping with its historical origins in Ernst Mach, the person where the Mach um, thing about planes comes from, and Franz Bentano in the late 19th century who used phenomenology as method primarily as an answer to mechanism and materialism, not as an endorsement of Descartes. Both men emphasized the need to overcome the reductive method of positivism by returning to methods other than those of mathematical physics in order to understand the thinking being, the thinking subject, which is not reducible to matter in motion. Phenomenology as method which relies on pre-scientific and pre-philosophical experience was perfectly suited to their uh, purposes. Okay. Um, now, uh, dwelling then on phenomenology for a second, any method relies on epistemological and metaphysical assumptions and is not just used in a vacuum. This is also true of phenomenology as a method. Using as first principle that actio sequitur esse, that action follows on being, John Paul II interprets the notion of philosophy done in light of experience to mean that we can know being in and through our experience of the actions and activities of that being. This means metaphysically that there is a real being independent of our thinking, and it means epistemologically that we have access to that being through what he calls experience. Although he calls experience intuitionistic in a text I quoted above, that do, this does not mean that phenom phenomenology is a naive looking at things on the basis of a first impression. Rather, it involves a painstaking effort to remain true to the whole of experience and not to draw premature conclusions or fashion premature ideologies and systems on the basis of a partial understanding of reality. That John Paul II uses phenomenology as method also explains why he critiques phenomenologists as Scheler on the basis of phenomenology itself. Thus, on the one hand, he endorses Scheler uh, this is a student um, of Husserl who opposed Kant and um, who um, taught at the uh, University of Cologne um, in the 30s and 40s, anyway. Um, thus, on the one hand, he endorses Scherer for partially rebuilding the relation of experience to the ethical life, and on the other hand, critiques Scherer on the basis of phenom phenomenology, saying, for example, Scheler then based the entire ethical experience on secondary elements. B 
because he stripped it of the backbone of the will. And here we can report Scheler from the standpoint of phenomenology itself. Um, for Scheler, Kant's um, um, categorical, categorical imperative um, was too limited, and he said that we have to return to objects and values. Um, but um, John Paul II says that he himself was one-sided and stripped, it of, um, stripped ethics of the will. To sum up, Cartesian thought dominated the West for centuries. It defines man as consciousness. John Paul, II, John Paul II's response to Cartesian thought is not reactive or defensive, but constitutes a different proposal. Man is first and foremost a person. Hence, his philosophy is widely called personalism. Moreover, by building on the foundations of the tradition and integrating the fruit phenomenology has to offer, he provides a synthesis that does not reject the past or bypass modernity. So now turning to the other side of this big project for, for John Paul II. Uh, looking now at the person and the individual. So now from, from uh, turning to modernity, we now turn towards his reaction uh, and, and reception of the past of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, as noted in the beginning of the previous section, the basis for John Paul II's understanding of the person is the definition first found in Boethius, together with the holomorphic understanding of human nature, i.e. the soul is the form of the body. If this is so, is John Paul II uh, just a restatement of what Aquinas says, or is it something new? And if it is new, does it depart from the traditional understanding of human nature? A more in-depth look at their understanding of the human being reveals that John Paul II's philosophy of the person is a change in emphasis and a change in idiom. Um, this is going to matter, though. I mean, a change in idiom is the way of saying things differently, and a change in emphasis is that you, you know, emphasize something differently, but you still are in that tradition. Um, but it's really going to ma matter, as we, we will see when I turn to um, one of um, John Paul II's encyclicals on work. And there's really a difference in, in his understanding of work compared to the tradition, we'll see. The change of emphasis can be summed up in contrast to the departure from Cartesian thought outlined above. While John Paul II says in response to Descartes that the human being is not consciousness but a person, he says in response to Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas that the human being is a rational animal, but more primarily a person. In other words, the change in emphasis hinges on what John Paul II understands by the difference between rational animal and person. I quote, what does it mean to pause cognitively at lived experience? This pausing should be understood in relation to the irreducible. The traditions of philosophical anthropology would have us believe that we can, so to speak, pass right over this dimension, that we can cognitively omit it by means of an abstraction that provides us with a species definition of the human being, as a being, or in other words, with a cosmological, cosmological type of reduction, homo equals animal rationale. One might ask, however, whether in so defining the essence of the human being, we do not leave out, in a sense, what is most human, since the humanum expresses and realizes itself 
precisely as the personale, as the personal? If so, then the irreducible would suggest that we cannot come to know and understand the human being in a reductive way alone. This is also what the contemporary philosophy of the subject seems to be telling the traditional philosophy of the object. This means that in defining the human being as a rational animal, I emphasize the common form of all that all individuals have. An individual, also called suppositum, then is just one instantiation of the common form. It's sort of like you have golf tees, and the universal form is golf tee, and every individual is just another golf tee. Um, um, but is this a complete understanding of the human being? Our very use of language seems to suggest that it isn't. We scorn someone by calling them individual, for example, by saying, that individual lives up the street. Um, by contrast, John Paul II claims that the human being must be understood primarily as unique and unrepeatable, namely as a person. I quote, the experience of the human being cannot be derived by way of cosmological reduction. We must pause at the irreducible, at that which is unique and unrepeatable in each human being, by virtue of which he or she is not just a particular human being, an individual of a certain species, or you know, one golf tee under the form of golf tees, but a personal subject. He explicitly calls this type of understanding of the human being personalistic. Moreover, he adds that the personalistic type of understanding of the human being is not the antinomy of the cosmological type, but its complement. This is, of course, in John Paul II's words, a challenging perspective. Isn't focusing on the irreducible and unrepeatable in the human being linked to subjectivism and irrationality? Your experience and your decisions aren't the same as mine. And how can we form a consistent ethics then? This both is and is not what John Paul II is getting at. What he means is that it is an objective reality that your experiences and decisions are not the same as mine. This means that it is an objective experience that the human being is a kind of being who is capable of subjectivity. Moreover, subjectivity in this sense is found within human nature, a quote, within the objective reality that we call the human being. One may ask further whether Thomason has endorsed uh, this definition of man, uh, has endorsed this uh, all along uh, in the definition of man as a rational animal. Doesn't to be rational mean to be oriented to the true and by extension also to the good, and uh, therefore to make unrepeatable and irreducibly unique decisions. John Paul II likewise ends his contrast between the cosmological and personalistic understanding of the human person with questions. For example, where, if at all, do reduction and the disclosure of the irreducible in the human being diverge? How is the philosophy of the subject to disclose the objectivity of the human being in the personal subjectivity of this being? He calls these burning questions which determine the perspective for contemporary anthropology and ethics. In sum, while a lot of questions remain, John Paul II's reception of Thomism can be seen as a change in ibium or a further development of his notion of the human being. If the human being is not consciousness but person in opposition to Descartes, the person, in turn, is rational animal, but primarily the unrepeatable and irreducible subject in response to Thomas Aquinas. Um, a historical note on this, why, why, um, you know, historically, why did 
thinkers as John Paul II go down this road. While his colleague at the University of Lurin said that the suffering of the Second World War was so terrible that it brought home without any doubt that a human being is not simply consciousness. Because when you suffer, you know, physically and spiritually, <coughs> it, the evidence of the real world is just simply there. Moreover, um, the, the suffering also brought home the ideologies that perpetrated that kind of dealing with other humans. It was done in an ideology of man understood as shall we say, the universal of, you know, human beings in general or the classes or whatever. And the individual kind of got lost as, I mean, you, you saw by, your, by the communists, um, the individual got lost um, in uh, the communist ideology of the project of bettering mankind. You know, the utopia was not yet there, so we can better things from mankind. But individuals were just a means to that end, really. And, you know, the Nazi ideology showed the same thing. It didn't matter who you were as um, a Jew. You know, it didn't matter whether you had fought bravely um, in the First World War for <coughs> Germany or whether you had been a doctor and cured many people. Um, all that mattered were what class you belonged to. So um, this uh, then, uh, these, these kinds of thoughts that I've been describing in fancy philosophical terms didn't originate in a vacuum, um, but came about um, through historical realities that um, these John Paul II and his colleagues uh, saw it needed uh, to be dealt with in a responsible way by the, f by the leaders that, you know, they were. I mean, even at the University of Lublin, they were the ones who were teaching there, and then, you know, John Paul II went on to Rome. Now, I, I've given you the historical context, but I will also show you why this really matters in, like, everyday things, in mm -hmm. concrete everyday teaching. So. Uh, the concept of the person in the philosophical work um, of Pope John Paul II is the explicit foundation for his contribution to ethics and theology. The best proof for this is an induction from just a random sample of his major works, namely Love and Responsibility, his, encyclical for, his encyclicals for example, Laborum Exercens, and um, just a brief glance, there's a very brief glance of the theology of the body. So at the outset of love and responsibility, John Paul II restates the concept of the person as uh, the concept of a human being as both person and holomorphic union of body and soul. I, I quote, it is not sufficient to speak of man as an individual of the species Homo sapiens of, of the rational animal. The word person has been coined in order to stress that man cannot be reduced wholly to what is contained in the concept of a specimen of the species but has in himself something more, something, some particular fullness and perfection of being. To emphasize this fullness and perfection, the word person must necessarily be used. 
And then in addition, turning now to the holomorphic part, he says, in addition, the person possesses a body and even in a sense is a body. And that's so beautiful because, you know, in Descartes, the, in a way, the, you know, the consciousness has a body tacked onto it has a body. But in a holomorphic sense, if you want to express it, like in simple language, the person is soul and body. Now, what difference does this make? He goes on to say that precisely because human beings are persons, they should not be used as means to ends. Uh, here, using endorsing Kant, who is you know, one version of the categorical imperative, is that you shouldn't use persons as means to ends. So it's neat. So he takes the good things he sees in modern philosophy. And in this case, uh, not using persons as means to ends, meaning uh, since it's about love and responsibility and sexual ethics, it's about not using persons as means to ends, do mere pleasure seeking. Um, I quote, for a person should not be merely a means to an end for another person. This is excluded due to the very nature of the person, due to what every person simply is. For the person is a subject that is thinking and capable of self-determination. These are two properties that first of all we discover in the interiority of the person. Accordingly then, every person is capable by his nature to define his ends in himself. When someone else treats a person exclusively as a means to an end, then the person is violated and what belongs to the very essence and at the very time constitutes his natural right. So he makes clear then that ethical norms and sexual ethics follow directly, I mean, like immediately from what persons are. And he develops the whole book, Love and Responsibility then, as and you know, as any principle, it, it it's it's the, that from which everything else comes, uh, in light of the principle of the person, his understanding of the person. So this is interesting to see because there you have a direct application of uh, his uh, reception of Cartesianism uh, now in the realm of sexual ethics. The next uh, bit I'm going to uh, deal with is an application of his reception um, of uh, cl classical and Thomistic thinking on work, where uh, understanding the person as a subject really matters in how you treat and think of the worker. So similarly then, in the encyclical Laborum Exergens, John Paul II appeals to the person understood as subject in this instance, to signal a radical departure from work as it was understood in the ancient world. I quote, the dominion over the earth, the biblical dominion over the earth, in a certain sense, refers to the subjective dimension even more than to the objective one. This dimension conditions the very ethical nature of work. In fact, there's no doubt that human work has an ethical value of its own, which clearly and directly remains linked to the fact that the one who carries it out is a person, and a person is the one who has dominion. No other, no other being has this dominion over the earth. Um, a conscious and free subject, that is to say, a subject is, that decides about himself. This truth, which in a sense constitutes the fundamental and perennial heart of Christian teaching on human work, has had and continues to have primary primary significance for the formulation and the important social problems characterizing whole ages. And now here you then see in what I'm going to say, the departure. And I'm going to simply paraphrase this long thing here, which is beautiful. But um, basically, um, in classical and medieval thought, um, manual work 
was regarded as slavish. And uh, people who um, carried on manual work uh, were branded in that way too. So um, um, it's something that constituted people as a class and that constituted people as individuals as doing something servile, so servile work. Um, now, um, what John Paul II says is that if we look at uh, the human being as a subject of work, as a person who does work, the dignity of the work comes from the dignity of the, wor of the worker. So you have a spiritual being, a person, who is unrepeatable and um, unique and the soul will never be repeated again in the whole universe performing this work. That is what gives the work dignity. So it's not that the work performed imputes servility on the worker. Uh, it's the opposite. The dignity of the worker confers dignity on the work done. And he says that the, the, uh, it is no surprise then that um, Christ came as a carpenter, came to us as a carpenter, and uh, conferred dignity on that work um, because of his personhood. Okay. Um, so, um, as a, I quote, as a person, man is, is therefore the subject of work. As a person, he works as a person, he performs various actions belonging to the work process. Independently of their objective content, these actions must all serve to realize his humanity, to fulfill the calling to be a person th that is his by reason of his very humanity. The principal truths concerning this theme were re recently recalled by the Second Vatican Council in the Constitution Guardium et Spes, it's, uh, uh, especially in chapter one. Um, so obviously, very quickly, uh, you know, um, ethical demands follow on how workers should be treated. Um, slavery was very um, useful for the Greeks. You know, there was one freeman per seven slaves, and that's how they maintained their system. But um, often, you know, well, the slaves were <coughs> not regarded with the full dignity of personhood. And this carried over um, into the notion of servile work. Of course, you know, um, um, there are distinctions between kinds of works, which that's clear to everyone. But I think I made clear the kind of shift in, in, in understanding that this, uh, John Paul II endorses. Um, finally, um, I would like to turn to um, one uh, um, more book and um, illustrate the key notion of the person as principle for everything that's done there, and that's his theology of the body and it's really in defense of the human person, body and soul, and using, using biblical interpretation um, spanning from Genesis to the New Testament and um, 
looking at uh, the human person as created, and in the beginning means there, as John Paul II says, uh, not in the beginning of time, but in the beginning in principle. It, what is the foundation? What is what is human? What what are human beings in their essence? What is the beginning? The principle and its personhood, and the beauty there is. And so, when you first see in *Love and Responsibility* the defense of um, sexual ethics, like s saving that from um, kind of the body, just as not part of the personhood, and then you see work saved. Here you see really a full-blown um, um, development of the notion of the male and the female and the notion of personhood because the, the what he gets into in the beginning of, of um, the theology of the body is male and female he made them and it's together as complementary uh, men and women are in the image of God not singly singly yes also obviously that's the tradition and so far as we have um, intellect and free choice, uh, that's a tradition. Um, but also, insofar as men and women are made in, uh, uh, men and women in their complementarity are made in the image of God. And there are two, as you know from reading Genesis, there are two creation texts, and he focuses on one of them to bring out that truth. And so the rest of the theology of the body is really focusing on um, the relationship of man and woman, of male and female, and giving it a profound interpretation um, in light of the first principle that man and woman are both persons, and really, in my opinion, um, being um, the knight who is like saving the damsel in distress here by um, emphasizing the personhood of both men and women equally in the image of God. So. Um, um, then to to um, sum up, principles matter, and uh, principles matter as um, the Second World War showed the suffering and the destruction of the person, the unique and irrepeatable, in the name of saving manhood, or in the name of you know, some people in general are are enemies. And every country did that, you know. So I won't go into that. Um, so principles matter, and so it matters that um, in looking at the past, that um, persons are seen as unique and irrepeatable in light of the experience of the Second World War. And it matters that persons are seen as um, subjects and as a union of body and soul in response to uh, Cartesian reductionism uh, where the body is excluded from personhood and therefore it does not really it, it, it how uh, it's not clear what guidelines what what unique uh, ethical guidelines you can give on that basis um, um, of personhood um, the body as a mere material thing, um, it's kind of up for grabs, as we've seen in so much of modern life. And then um, I showed with the outlook to the three um, books I mentioned how much first principles uh, enter into 
um, what follows from them, namely uh, teaching on sec sexual ethics, a teaching on work, a teaching on uh, the relationship of man and woman and um, the, the mutuality of man and woman developed uh, theologically in, in uh, the theology of the body, but from the philosophical principle of what, what a person is. So then, um, 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 you see that John Paul II is consistent, and um, um, and has done an incredible work, um, both looking at the past and um, integrating integrating the past, integrating the past in modernity, integrating the past in Aristotelian and Thomistic thought to come up with um, a sound understanding of the person and um, of um, ways to um, respond to other people. Thank you. <laughs>